Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. I'm excited that as we begin another year together of following Christ here at Wildwood, um, that we get to do so as a church family. And uh, this morning, as we gather and as we look forward to the new year, one of the things that I'm, I'm mindful of are the things that lie on the horizon for each of us. You know, look at your 2018, just from your vantage point in your chair, just kind of your mind's eye, look ahead. What do you see? I know for some of you, you see weddings. I know right now of five weddings of Wildwood people in 2018 that I get to be a part of. And so I'm thinking about 2018 and I think about weddings. For some, you know that's on the horizon. For others, you hope it's on the horizon and you're elbowing something right now as, uh, as we talk about this. But maybe it's a wedding. Maybe it's, maybe it's not a wedding that's on the horizon this year. Maybe it's a, a funeral service. Somebody over the holidays recently passed away, you know, uh, in our family, we, we had a couple of those. I mentioned this before Christmas and spent part of our Christmas break uh, remembering the lives of, of some loved ones who are with Jesus now in his presence and uh, more on the way. And you may know of somebody who is ill and you're waiting for that email to come in or that phone call. For others, uh, it's a medical test that you're waiting the results on or a surgery that's scheduled. For others, it's a new job that you're taking. Or maybe it's an old job and you know what lies ahead because you've been on this and now it's the same song, the hundredth verse. Or maybe it's none of those things. Maybe as you look forward into this year, um, there is an opportunity, there's a graduation, there's a move, whatever it is ahead of you. But when you look at your 2018, what do you see? Now, well, some of the things as you look into the new year, there are things that you see that you know are going to happen. They're already on your schedule. But there are other things that will happen this year that will greatly impact you, but you cannot plan for. Now, as we head into the new year, there may be something that is on the horizon that I can guarantee you all of us will face, but it may not be on your daytime. There is something that all of us will wrestle with and wrangle with, but you may not have already formulated a plan for. And so as we gather today at the beginning of a new year, I think it's helpful for us to look at a reality that the Bible talks about that says that we will face, but maybe we haven't planned for. Well, what is that? It's the reality that there is a war that is being waged around us, a war that is being waged around us. Now, what is that war? I'm not talking about some conflict in Korea or some conflict in Iran or the Middle East. I'm talking about a war in the spiritual realm. That around us right now, there is a battle that is being waged between the armies of the living God and the followers of Satan. And you know, as we gather here today, and even as I say that, there's some of you that are like, well, we don't talk about that very much. And you know what? I, I think that there's something that happens to us, those of us who, this is our book, we read it and we begin to think because we can read it and because we can understand it that God is somehow totally definable and everything is just what we see. But this book that I hold in my hands and that you hold in your hands or that appears on the screen of your phone talks about a spiritual battle. 
it talks about a spiritual war that is being raged around us. And friends, we need to be mindful of that. I can guarantee you that war will be going on in 2018, as it has been since the beginning of time. And so doesn't it make sense for us to know what it is, know who that enemy is, and how we should prepare for it? Absolutely. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. And as we look at these 10 verses together, what we're going to see is that we can wrestle in prayer this year in light of the battle that is being waged around us. So take your Bible out and turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20 is where we're going to be. Now, but before I read those verses, I want to just make this comment. Uh, Ephesians, like all of this section of God's Word, they're, they're letters that were written by an individual to a church under the direction and the power of the Holy Spirit. So the, the epistle to the Ephesians was really a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians that lived in the town of Ephesus. And after saying a number of things to them, he concludes his letter by talking about this spiritual battle. We see this beginning in verse 10. Paul writes and says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as your, for your shoes, for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, friends, we're going to look and unpack these verses a little more in depth. Before we do that, I want to just make one admission. This section of Scripture may be your favorite, and if it is, you're going to be disappointed because you hope this is the beginning of a 10-part series which no doubt we could spend 10 weeks in these 10 verses. Uh, but today, I think there's value in us seeing their whole, their collective whole. See the, the forest, not just a tree, as it reminds us of the spiritual battle that is waging and how we can respond in believing prayer. So we're going to see three things today by looking at these verses. The first thing we're going to see is this. We have an enemy. We have an enemy. Now, we see this in the tone of this passage from the very beginning. I mean, Paul is talking about all kinds of things here. He's talking about being strong in his might. He talks about putting on armor. He talks about wrestling. He talks about being able to stand firm. And that begs the question, why do we need to wear armor? Who is trying to push us down that a command to stand makes sense? Why do we need the strength and the might of the Lord? 
Well, the reason why is clear in this passage. It's because we have an enemy. And that enemy is defined in this passage as the devil. He says in verse 11 that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, this word devil, it literally means accuser. We have somebody in the spiritual realm who is seeking to accuse the followers of God. Somebody who is living in rebellion against God, who is seeking to accuse the followers of God and derail the plans of God in the world. However futile an activity that may be, there is a real enemy that is at work in the spiritual realm. Here called the devil. But not only is he called the devil here, this is someone who shows up throughout Scripture, and so maybe it's helpful for us to gain a bigger picture of the fact that this is the enemy of God from the very beginning all the way until he will do away with him in the end. We see that he's also called Satan. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, the word Satan means adversary. He's the chief adversary of God and the people of God. Not only is he called the devil or called Satan, but he's also called the tempter. We see this in Matthew chapter 4 as Satan comes and tempts Jesus to walk away from God's plan for his life. He's a tempter. Not only is he a tempter, but he's also a murderer and a liar. John chapter 8 verse 44, Jesus says that Satan is really the father of murder. He's the father of destruction. He's the father of lies. He's come not to give us life, but to take it from us. That's who he is. Not only is he a tempter, a murderer, and a liar, but he also was described in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 as a roaring lion seeking to devour his prey. That's us. He's our adversary. He's our accuser. He's the enemy of God. Not only is he described as the roaring lion, he's also described as the serpent. We see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when in the garden the serpent comes and in tricks, Adam and Eve tempts them to disobey God, to not trust God as they succumb to the serpent or the accuser or the adversary of God, the tempter, the liar. They succumb to him. Not only is he described as a serpent, he's also described in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 as the angel of light. This is an admission that Satan doesn't come in the cartoonish figure that we often think about with horns and a pitchfork and a little red suit. No, Satan comes as in disguise, an angel of light, appearing to offer good things when in fact trying to twist God's word, trying to derail God's people, seeking to devour and to lie to us. This is the enemy that we have. Not only that, but he's called the God of this age in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That's the idea that right now we live in a unique era of eternity. Right now is an era in which Satan has some influence in the world in which we live. There will come a day where God is going to take care of him forever and ever. Revelation talks about that for us in chapters 20 and 21 and 22. You can see a picture of life without Satan then. But right now we live in an age, a season, where Satan has influence in this world. We see that here. And then also he's described as, in the Old Testament, uh, as Lucifer. You may have heard that title. Isaiah chapter 14 uh, references that by way of an analogy. 
And so we have this, this opponent of God. Now, there's something that we need to remember as we think about who Satan is. He's limited. He's limited. Now, our God, is he limited? Absolutely not. Our God is, can do everything. He can be everywhere. He knows everything. Satan, not true of him. A created being. He's limited. And so in order for Satan to work his plans on this earth, he needs some help. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4 talks about how when Satan fell and disobeyed God in some point in eternity past, that with him came a third of the angels. So it's not just Satan himself, it's Satan plus his demons. All limited, not as powerful as God, but there are many of them. That's why in chapter 6, after referencing the schemes of the devil in verse 11, the Apostle Paul goes on and talks about all of these other folks. He talks about wrestling against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's talking about a myriad of angelic beings, fallen angels, demons, and Satan who have some influence in this world. Friends, right here in Ephesians 6, inside of our Bible, still relevant for us today, it talks about how we have an enemy. And that enemy is Satan and his followers, and they seek to devour, destroy, distract, to bother us as the followers of God. Now, how does that show up? In what way does the influence of Satan seek to disrupt God's plans in the world. Well, I think it's helpful for us to see even what Paul might have had in mind as he places this inside the context of this letter. You see, when he begins verse 10, he says the word finally. I think that's an important word because it lets us know that this statement he's getting ready to make in these 10 verses has something to do with the things he has just said. He's offering this as a conclusion. So where does Satan seek to distract, devour, and get after the people of God? Well, just flip back in the book of Ephesians. Look at chapter 2. Beginning at chapter 2 talks about how we are, are, are people who were dead in our trespasses. We are people who have fallen short of God. Satan wants to take that history of ours, some of it even very recent history, maybe even this week or this morning or this day, and he wants to take those events and he wants to accuse us as unworthy of God's grace. It's one of the ways that Satan works. But then flip forward, what else does Satan want to do? He wants to disrupt the unity of the church. Look at chapter 4 of Ephesians, your little heading in my Bible, it says, unity in the body of Christ talks about in chapter 4 the, the unity that is in the church. One of the ways that Satan wants to work is he wants to disrupt our unity. He wants to have us bickering and distracted and angry with each other. If Satan can get us at each other's throats, he knows that we will not be about the work of God in the world. That's his desire. That's the enemy that is at play. Not only is he trying to disrupt the church, but he's also at work in all of the, the, the foundational relationships inside our culture, trying to get people attacking one another and having their eyes on each other and not on, on God. We see that in chapter 5 as he talks about husbands and wives. One of the things I think Satan wants to do is he wants to disrupt 
the building blocks of society. He wants to get after the family. Not only does he want to disrupt the relationship between husbands and wives, but he also wants to disrupt the relationship between kids and their parents, the beginning of chapter 6, and parents and their kids. See, if Satan can, can just be at work getting us at, at odds and distracted and, and at each other's throats, then we can forget the reality of God. And he, Satan's trying to work his plans that way. Not only that, but chapter 6 continues in the verses immediately preceding verse 10, and he talks about the relationships in the workplace. He calls it bond servants and masters, but in our world we might call it bosses and employees. See, Satan is at work disrupting the relationships around us. And guess what, friends? We live in this world. We live in a world where there is a spiritual battle that is being waged around us, and Satan and his demons are after us. Now, aren't you encouraged? Aren't you glad you got up to come to church today? Well, friends, thankfully, there's more to this story. There's more to this story. And what we find is in the midst of the conflict and the battle that wages around us that we do not need to be afraid. We do not need to be afraid. Now, that's pretty remarkable, right? We're talking about a demonic battle that is waging around us and shrapnel is flying in our direction, and yet we do not need to be afraid? I mean, are we we serious? Yes, absolutely, we're serious. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul will go so far as to say that we can be strong in the midst of this, that we can have strength in the might of the Lord. Now, that's where that strength comes from. How do we stand in the midst of a, uh, of a supernatural battle? We stand with supernatural strength. We stand because the Lord has enabled us to stand. Let me ask you, what, what is really getting after you today? What is it? Illness? relationship, frustration, what what is it? What is it that's really getting your goat today? Now think about this. Is our God stronger than that? Is our God bigger than that? Absolutely. How do you stand in the face of a world that's quaking? You stand with a God who is able to stand. Nothing can move him. And when we are connected to him, nothing can move us as well. We're able to stand in the strength and the might of the Lord. Not only does he, he talk about that, but he says that we can really, we can stand firm. We can, we can stand firm. We can not be moved because the, the, the Lord is at work. And, and this all comes about because we can put on the armor of God to take up or to put it on. It's interesting, Paul doesn't say, hey, you need to go find a place to hide. You need to build a bunker to hide from this battle that wages around you. You need to relationally cut yourself off from people so that you might not get hurt anymore. He doesn't say that at all, does he? He doesn't even tell us that we have some path to, or journey to go on to where protection is available. He says there's protection that we already have. There's a full suit of armor that God has already placed in front of us. All we have to do is put it on. See, the armor is available to protect us from this spiritual battle. And and the wise soldier of Christ is one who will put that armor on, as Ephesians 4, verse 27 says, so that we would not give the devil any opportunity. A soldier without his armor has given an opportunity for his enemy to attack. But if we place on the armor that God has given, we will find ourselves protected in the day of battle. 
And so Paul talks about a protection and an armor that God has. Now, I think it's funny that he does this, right? Because let's just think of the context for how Paul said this and when he said it. He said it while he was arrested. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 20 talks about how he was in chains. This is not a figurative expression. Paul was literally chained up when he wrote this letter. And on the other end of that chain was a Roman soldier. And so Paul and his world, which has shrunk greatly, is sitting there, chained to a Roman soldier, wanting to encourage the Christians in Ephesians, in, in Ephesus, and by application to encourage all of us as well. And the source material is the person sitting right there. And so, you know, the, you can imagine that Roman soldier just looking at him like, what, what are you looking at? Like, well, I just want to just kind of take an inventory of what's on you. Because what you're wearing right now is a fit analogy for the protection that my God has given to me. You can't touch me, Paul's saying, because of the protection that God has given. So as he looks at that uniform of that soldier, he begins to describe it. Well, what does he describe? First thing he talks about, as he talks about in verse 14, fastening the belt of truth. For a Roman soldier, all of their armor would have been held together with a central belt. The, the sword would have hung on it. Their, their armor would have been secured by it. It was a very important piece, the belt. In the same way, Satan comes at us with lies. He's a liar, the father of lies. We saw that, John 8, 44. So for a Christian in the midst of those kinds of attacks, how do we find protection? We find protection in the truth. Satan comes with lies, we respond with truth. There's hope and there's protection. We don't need to fear because God has revealed for us the truth of the matter. Not only that, but it says that we can put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate would have been some armor that would have covered the torso of the Roman soldier, his front and his back, would have protected the vital organs. In the same way, the righteousness of Christ protects us. Think about this. If Satan is an accuser, in his legion of, of demons, they, they can take our failures and our faults that have been observable in the world, and they want to take those things and use them against us to accuse us of not being worthy of God's grace, to accuse us of not being able to be used by him. That's the lies of Satan, because if we know Christ, guess what? We are protected by the righteousness of Christ. How do we stand firm in that day? Not because we've lived a perfect life, but because the righteousness of Christ surrounds us. Now, there is a hint here that living out a life of righteousness further bolsters that armor, but ultimately our hope is found not in our performance, but in Christ's. The breastplate of righteousness is placed about us. Then he moves on to the feet. Roman soldier would have had some shoes that would have had nails driven through them. So they would have been like early cleats, right? Uh, so they could stand firm in the time of battle. Paul here looks at those cleats on that Roman shoulder shoes, and he says, you know, that reminds me that I can stand firm in the midst of the conflict that wages around me because there is a gospel good news that I now have peace with God, and God has enabled me to share that peace with others, and that allows me to stand firm even in a shaky world. Not only does he go to his, his feet, but then he starts talking about the shield, in verse 16, he says, In all circumstances, having taken up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield would have been a very important a piece of the armor of a Roman soldier. 
And these shields uh, did not look like Captain America's shield, as much as I would want them to. I'm kind of a Cap fan. They wouldn't have looked like that. They would have looked almost like giant rectangles. They would have been about two feet wide, about four feet tall. And the Roman soldier would, would hold it, and they would, they would be able to find protection behind it in battle. But these shields were not intended to be used by themselves, but they were t- intended to be used with other soldiers so that Roman soldiers could get together in a line and they could link their shields across so that they had an impenetrable fortress in front of them. And then other soldiers could lay their shields on top and click them in, and so they would find protection from above in case of an attack from on high. And in that way, clicked together, these shields proved to be protective for Roman soldiers. But you can imagine if you were an enemy army and you saw this walking wall coming towards you, you would want to get on the inside of it. Well, how did they do that? They did so by lighting arrows on fire and shooting them into those shields, trying to smoke them out. So what did the Roman soldiers do to protect? They dipped their shields in water so that when the flaming arrows hit, they would be extinguished. In the same way, friends, we are called to hold up the shield of faith and to not hold it up alone, but to click it together with other followers of Christ. So that we are left not only to our own faith, but our faith is multiplied in the community of believers. That when we gather around each other, we help each other process life together. So that we can respond with faith instead of fleeing our God. This is the picture of of the opportunity that we have as a church in our small groups and in our children's ministry classrooms as prayer requests are shared and in our student ministry and collegiate ministry. When we gather together, we click our shields together and we try to extinguish the lies of Satan that come in our direction. We don't have to be afraid because we have the faith of the community to gather around and behind. Friends, we don't have to be afraid. He keeps going, though. He talks about the helmet of salvation. Now, where does the helmet go? It goes on the head. What happens in the head? That's where our thoughts are. You take off the head, you kill the life. But the head is also where strategy and reason comes from. In the same way, the salvation that God has given leads to a transformation of our minds. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So that we might understand schemes of the Satan, we might be able to stand firm on the day of conflict. Not only that, he talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Friends, this book right here is a weapon. It's a weapon. It is something that can be used to fend off attack. Uh, Jesus demonstrated this when Satan comes in a full-on attack in the temptation in Matthew 4. What, how does Jesus fight off Satan? How does he defend himself against the lies of Satan? With three verses from the book of Deuteronomy. I mean, think about that, right? I mean, we, we would think, well, he must have pulled out some Romans, or he must have pulled out, if he only had the Old Testament, at least some book of Exodus, but Deuteronomy, are you kidding me? Absolutely, it was Deuteronomy. Why? Because this book, in all of its parts, is a powerful weapon. And this is something that the people of God have have seen from the beginning. Moses had a sword, didn't he? A real sword. How do we know he had a real sword? He killed somebody with it. Moses saw an Egyptian who was oppressing one of the people of God. He takes out that sword in his early days and he kills that man. But how effective was that sword compared to the sword of the word of God later on in Moses' life? Moses may have been able to protect one 
of his people with a real sword, but he was able to bring all of Israel out of Egypt with the word of God. Peter found this out too. The crowd comes in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, and Peter pulls out a sword and he cuts off the ear of one servant. How effective was that? Jesus healed the guy immediately too. But compare that to the day of Pentecost when Peter pulls out the word of God. He teaches from the book of Joel and other places. The impact and the effect of that was far, far greater. Thousands respond. See, friends, God has given us his armor. Therefore, we don't need to be afraid. The book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians, another letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, are very similar letters. And at the end of the book of Colossians, Paul makes this statement. He says that we are to clothe ourselves in Christ. And I think that that is a parallel statement to taking up the armor of God. Because when we put Jesus on us, Jesus provides for us all of these things. Think about this. Jesus is our truth. We talked about the belt of truth in John 14, 6. Jesus is our truth. Jesus is our righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness, Jesus provides that for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. The righteousness of God, of Christ, given to us through him. He's our peace. We talk about our shoes being the gospel of peace. Jesus is our peace. Ephesians 2.14, providing peace not only with God, but with other men. Jesus is our our faith. Romans 3.22, it is by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that we are saved. The shield of faith we hide behind is his strength, his might, his decision, his faithfulness. Not only that, but we see the salvation. Luke 2.30 talks about Jesus being the one who brings salvation to us. The helmet of salvation that sits about us is the victory that Christ won. And Jesus is the word of God. John 1.1 1, 1 and 14. So we come to Jesus. We're clothed in him. And because of that, friends, we do not need to be afraid. Though the battle is waging, though the enemy is real, we can stand firm because Jesus is greater than all of it. So what do we do? If we're not going to be afraid, I mean, what's the point of this message? If I'm not going to walk out of here just terrified, what, what am I supposed to do? Well, in addition to putting on the armor, why don't we pray? Why don't we pray? You see, if our understanding of life is that it is a battle against flesh and blood, we will think of only flesh and blood things that we need to do. We need to manipulate, manage relationships and people and all that kind of stuff. Well, if we think that the world is flesh and blood, then we will come up with only flesh and blood solutions. But when we understand that there is a spiritual battle that is waging, friends, that ought to drive us to pray because we need a spiritual answer to the spiritual problem. And as followers of Christ, we have the opportunity to pray. That's why Paul continues in his, his statements here and really concludes with a spirit of prayer. After talking about the armor that we have the privilege of putting on, this is what he, this is what he says. He says, verse 18, praying at all times. We ought to be praying at all times. This, this means don't just pray in that one little spot in our service when we pray, Right? Or at the end, don't just pray then, pray at all times. Don't just, don't just pray before your meal or as you put your children to bed at night, pray at all times. This means we would have a, a habit, a pattern of prayer in our lives. Another place in, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul will describe it as praying without ceasing. It's the idea of praying like a, having a hacking cough. Now, some of you have a hacking cough. 
That means it just happens all the time, right? Your your cough doesn't send you a memo and say, okay, I'm at church, can I cough now? No, you just have to cough because it's something that is a recurring pattern in your life. Something is tickling your throat and you just have to cough. And some of you have tried to conceal it this morning and you've done a poor job of that, okay? Uh, It's okay, it's okay, but here's the deal, right? There's this pattern of of a hacking cough. And in the same way, we are called to pray at all times. Not just wait for these big moments, but as the Lord brings things to mind that we would pray in all the areas of our life, we would pray. Not only we would pray at all times, but we would pray in the Spirit. We'd be directed and sensitive to the things that God would have us to pray for. That the Word of God, which was written by the Spirit of God, would be our prompt also to drive us to prayer. Not only would we pray at all times, not only would we pray in the Spirit, but we also would pray with, with all prayer and supplication. That means all the different kinds of ways we could pray, all of them are, are involved here. We can pray prayers of praise. Thank you, God, for, for who you are and what you've done. Thank you for the beauty of what you have created. Thank you for the opportunities you've placed in front of me. Thank, thankfulness is a kind of a prayer. Singing songs and hymns, that's a kind of a prayer. We're communicating to God. We're declaring his greatness. Supplications, Lord, I need you. Would you please provide blank for me or for someone else? Those are all kinds of prayers. And Paul says, in light of the spiritual battle that's waging around us, let's not be selective. Let's pray them all in a regular pattern in the direction of the Spirit. Pray with all prayer and supplication. Keep alert. Means don't just think about it when I mention it, but let's stay vigilant and persevere in that prayer. Because sometimes our prayers aren't answered the first time we ask, are they? We're called to persevere in our prayer as well. Not only are we to pray this way and for these things, but we're also to not just pray for ourselves, but Paul invites us to make supplication for all the saints. Now, you might be like, I don't even know all the people in this room, much less all the Christians in the world. That's okay. Guess what? This command goes out to all of us. So that collectively, all of us, through the the people that God brings to mind, we can get full coverage. The network is global as we all are praying for the opportunities that God has, not only in our lives, but in the lives of those around us, that we're lifting up those things in prayer. And we're not just praying for Aunt Edna's, you know, um, little, little procedure that she's having this week. We can certainly pray for those things as well, but also we're praying that as Paul invites them to pray for the gospel to go out through Paul into the city. We can pray for the Lord to work in ministry and evangelism through the lives of people. Friends, we respond not by being afraid, but we respond in prayer. And so how are we going to pray? Well, I want to invite you to participate in something with us this week to help us to build a new pattern in 2018 of prayer. And and that is going to be done in an interesting way. Now, Normally, you come into a room like this, you turn your cell phone off, and you put it away. I want to invite you to get it out. And if you are comfortable doing this, um, that you would send a text to 95577. And what I want you to text is just that little phrase, pray18. Text the words pray18 to 95577. If you do that, this is what will happen. Um, This week, six texts beginning tomorrow we will send with a prayer prompt so that all of us collectively can be praying. Because it's hard for us to get together. And it'd be wonderful to say, hey, we're going to get together at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning, but we'll be all over the place tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. 
But you know what? We have this web that connects us. So we're going to use it to send out a prompt so that collectively around the city, we can be praying some of the same things tomorrow. And for each of the days this week, let's, let's join uh, together in prayer. So if you are, are comfortable doing that, if you would send that in. At the end of this week, we're, we're, we'll, we'll uh, uh, transition that. So we're not going to blast you forever, but just for six days that we would be praying together in this way as we set a new pattern of praying and trusting the Lord in 2008. So with that said, let me pray now. Father, thank you that in the midst of this battle that is waging, we need not be afraid. Father, thank you that Christ has won a victory. And thank you that you have let us know about that battle, that victory, that struggle, this enemy, so that we can praise you for the victory that you provide. Father, that we would not be people who merely see the world as flesh and blood, but we would understand that there are spiritual dynamics that are at play. And Father, we would trust you for a spiritual answer to these spiritual problems. And Father, that as we head into this year, that we would see victory that Christ has won, played out in the way that we relate, in the way that we follow, and in the gospel going out in our community and around the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.